My name is Eigel Brild, and I'm delighted to be here on the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Mr. Ben Rock, how are you doing? I'm just ducky. How are you doing? I'm glad you're ducky. I'm doing fine. Here we are uh, again in beautiful webcam glory. <laughs> here uh, on, here on, on beautiful downtown Zoom. Downtown Zoom. Once again, uh, hey, we have another episode of the Cinematography Podcast. And on the show today is Igel Brild. I spoke to him and we had a great conversation all about the new Alexander Payne movie, which he just shot called The Holdovers. I, I haven't I, seen it yet, but I'm dying to see it. It looks so good. I loved it. It's really good. And uh, I'm going to highly recommend that you go out and see it. It's playing in, in theaters right now, and uh, it's absolutely worth seeing. And now, Close Focus. So, Ben, what is our uh, Close Focus today? What do we have to talk about? Well, it's kind of a it, 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 it's a weird melange of things that we've talked about on Close Focus all coming together. So we have The Strike, which is now just SAG-AFTRA, obviously, as the Writers Guild has stopped striking. Um, and then uh, and their big hang up, of course, is AI. Apparently, that's the thing that they can't get on the same page with the uh, AMPTP companies about. And in the same week, we have two interesting cases of AI. The first one was Scarlett Johansson suing someone for using, I believe, just her voice, her vocal likeness in an AI ad that was released on Twitter. I'm not going to call it X, on Twitter. And the other one, which no one's upset about, but I find kind of odd, is Paul McCartney released a new Beatles song that was made uh, in part thanks to AI, not AI creating a John Lennon vocal, but in fact, AI isolating a John Lennon vocal from a 50-year-old recording, because uh, in case you're keeping track, I believe uh, John Lennon died like 46 years ago or something. So it's, it's, it's mm. been a minute. And, uh, and so they made a new Beatles song, and Peter Jackson himself directed the, I'm just going to go ahead and call it, kind of disturbing, unintentionally disturbing Beatles music video. It, the song is called Now and Then. As a song, it's fine. It's not going to be anyone's favorite Beatles song. Uh, if you're a Beatles. Does, does it feel like a like a money grab where it was like, hey, here's this old song and we're going to put it I together and put it out into the world? Or? I don't know. I mean, like a money grab by people who are impossibly rich. Like I know. It's like they, they don't need the money. Yeah. It's like, you know. I, don't, I, mean, I think that it's Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr genuinely wanting to do another Beatles song. I mean, if you recall... Uh, I guess it's about 30 years ago, they, they made two Beatles tracks, Free as a Bird, and I think the other one was called Real Love. And in, at that time, George Harrison was still alive, and they used John Lennon demos. And if you listen to those songs, they sound kind of thin and tinny, and they had a hard time isolating his voice and making it sound as rich and full as if he were recorded, even on microphones as good as the ones you and I are using, because he probably in whatever, 1970, didn't have that. This one, again, if you saw the Beatles documentary that Peter Jackson made, and if you haven't, I believe it's on Disney Plus, it's, it's pretty interesting. And what Peter Jackson's company was able to do was come up with a technology to use AI 
to separate voices and in fact they could separate voices and instruments of of the Beatles in a very informal setting where they're just dicking around and trying to find the songs and you know talking over each other and they were able to ind- independently modulate and set levels for their voices for their instruments and all that stuff they were able to give it a mix as if it had been recorded in isolation in the studio I, I have no problem with Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, and I assume full cooperation from the John Lennon estate and the George Harrison estate uh, making the song. It's just the video super creepy because they're they're putting the four Beatles in it together, and they're making especially John Lennon kind of dance around in an odd way, and it's it's hard hard to describe. I recommend that people check it out. Uh, I'm not I'm not here to crap on it, but I think that it's it's interesting that AI here in this week, we have AI being used for good, I'll say, to make a new Beatles track, uh, certainly not harming anyone. And, and I think that it's a perfectly good use of AI to say, like, hey, let's isolate a vocal and do something interesting with it. And, you know, you could pull a vocal from a demo that's 50 years old. Imagine what you can do with something that was recorded on modern equipment. And then you have, you know, Scarlett Johansson, one of the first and definitely not the last celebrity to have her likeness stolen using AI. And uh, meanwhile, there was scuttlebutt. The butts were scuttling about uh, the the SAG after strike possibly ending this week or maybe next. And well, the, the and, studios, well, I should, I should say uh, the AMPTP said yes. this was their last best and final offer which then SAG rejected saying that you're only paying us to scan actors, not to actually use or reuse their likeness. Uh, And they said, that's a, that's a hard pass. Yeah. Well, and I agree with them. I mean, I feel like, you know, if anyone on earth, if I could bring you in, whatever your job is and digitally sample you doing your job and then say, Oh, by the way, your job is irrelevant now because I have everything I need to continue doing your job indefinitely without you. And I'm also not going to pay you for it. Who would participate in that? I, I don't get that at all, but I, th- I think that no matter what you do, I think AI is kind of a, a, a thing that we're going to be talking about for a minute, even though it is my personal opinion, AI is going to plateau out eventually. It's not going to be replacing everything like we think it is, but I still, I believe strongly that guardrails need to be put on it. And I'm not alone. Our government, the the Biden administration recently has done a huge crackdown on AI. And uh, I was listening to the New York Times podcast about technology called Hard Fork, which I recommend mm-hmm. to anyone who's into this stuff. And in last week's episode, they actually, one of them went to the White House for a press briefing about this. And they were saying that like, yeah, they know that like chat GPT and mid journey and all these things like that horse has left the barn. They're not trying to regulate what's already out there. They're trying to head off what's coming next in a government that tends to be way behind the curve when it comes to new technology stuff. It's nice to know that they're at least trying to set up guardrails and create accountabilities and stuff like that because it's a technology that's easy as hell to abuse. The fact that Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr have, you know, Peter Jackson's groundbreaking audio technology that was used to isolate their vocals, that's cool. But we all know that the way this stuff goes is, you know, in six weeks, maybe six months, maybe a year, we'll all have exactly what Peter Jackson had. We'll all have the highest end version of that at our disposal. And then what? You know, when you get to the point where you can fake literally anything using AI with anyone's voice and it sounds exactly like the real thing, I do think it's important to get those guardrails up, to be thinking about, you know, where it goes from here. 
I mean, I love how Peter Jackson used AI to isolate their vocals in that movie, but I don't like the idea that somebody could do that, you know, with public Create figures. Create whatever, put it out wherever, impersonate whatever. Yeah, it's exactly. All, it's, it's scary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For sure. So anyway, th- that's about that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that we're going to talk more about this just in the in the, the coming months and years because it, it's all uh, unfolding. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't actually want to belabor it too much. I want to get to the interview, but actually just as a little preface, Eigel's been around for a, a long time and uh, he's shot a lot of things. I think he first came on my radar with a movie called In Bruges he shot. Oh, I love and that then, movie. And then really I was paying attention to Eigel God, it must have been probably like 2013, something like that, when House of Cards debuted. He shot the entire first season of House of Cards. Oh, wow. uh, Which, uh, yeah, you know, looks incredible. And uh, he's gone on to do a ton of other movies, including Ocean's 8, which is which is a big, you know, studio movie. And now uh, with the new Alexander Payne film, The Holdovers, it's just such a fantastic looking movie. And it was it was really great to talk to him. I don't, I don't want to belabor this anymore. I want to get to the interview. So here's my interview with Eigel Burled. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm joined now by Eigel Brild. Uh, welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Eigel, you have been in the industry a long time and you've worked a ton in different movies. But I got to say that the, your new movie, The Holdovers, is something really, really special. And it's a period piece that's set in the uh, early 1970s. Can you give our listeners just a really quick, you know, logline, 30-second version of, of, of what this movie's about? It's a Christmas movie. It's set in a, in a boarding school for a, a high school boarding school uh, in the early 70s. And the main character is Professor Hunnam, who is a disgruntled uh, older professor in ancient philosophy, um, ancient civilizations. And the, the winter break is coming up, and usually and the kids all sort of go back to their uh, respective families but uh, but some of the kids uh, aren't so fortunate and 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 are stuck at the at the school and uh, yeah and that's uh, the, the canvas for the story and and it's a uh, it's really a film about uh, friendship and family and uh, belonging and uh, to a certain degree coming of age as well and, and but uh, it, it is a comedy it's, it's very funny but uh, but also very uh, heartfelt and and uh, textured and 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 very much character driven I, I think that's a great way to describe it. it it's also the latest movie from alexander payne you know one of my favorite directors and probably I'd say my favorite movie since Nebraska. And it's interesting that there's a theme that sort of goes through uh, goes through the holdovers about things that are old. You know, if, if you don't know the past, you're you're not going to you know, understand your, your your present or your future. And I kept as I was watching this feeling like this movie has little bits of other Alexander Payne movies that I love, little bits of stuff of like election and little bits of stuff of like the journey of like Sideways and Nebraska. And it's it fits together in what. And I know this is this is high praise here, but it feels so smart. This feels like such a smart, well-crafted, well-put-together movie. And your contribution to that, too, through, the, you know, the flow and the aesthetic and everything is just, I feel like, at the absolute top of his game. Like some of the, like the best stuff I've ever seen. So t- talk a little bit about your collaboration and how, you know, the look for the movie comes together. And I would say even more importantly, sort of the shot design of how you guys are flowing from one shot to the next. Is it, uh, it it's so intentional. It's clearly not all just figured out, you know, on the fly. Talk a little bit about this relationship and, and how the look comes to be. 
I mean, it's a true delight to work with uh, with Alexander because uh, he is very much uh, uh, what his movies are as well. He, he's a really uh, he has a great sense of humor, but he, and he's a very smart and, and decent person. He he really respects everybody on set, and you know he knows all the name of all the the extras. And when they come back the next morning, he'll greet them with their name and he'll ask them where they're from. And he he's very interested in in uh, in people. And I think that's sort of uh, the threat in in his movies as well. He really has he he's not looking down at people. He he's not judging anybody. He's he's generally interested in in sort of opening a window and and looking into people's lives with all their complexities and the the way i mean i had known alexander for a couple of years because we've been sort of flirting with the, with doing a few different projects that uh, that sort of didn't happen for various reasons covid and so i was on another film and i got the script for the holdovers and and it's just such a i mean it's such a beautiful script in in its simplicity and and its character development and and it seems very i mean obviously alexander didn't write it himself unusually but uh, it just read very much like a like an alexander payne movie so and i've always been of a sort of similar philosophy where uh, everything you sort of do and, and all your decisions have to be sort of driven by the character and by the story i don't like to ever move the camera unless i'm revealing something or, or unless I, i'm i've never really been in in any of what i do been interested in in sort of just sort of creating superficial sort of energy or whatever everything has to sort of be deliberate and and uh, and intentional and that's very much alexander's method as well so it's it's very hands-on as well we, we obviously have talked about the script and first and foremost obviously how, how do we actually make this look like a film that was shot in 1970 as opposed to to just being sort of window dressing and 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 sort of just making it the way because i think everybody has a recollection of what the 70s looked like but uh but that's probably very far from what movies actually looked like back then. So we talked a lot about, we looked at a lot of references, obviously a lot of Hal Ashby movies, um, uh, The Last Detail, The Landlord, uh, and really talking about more than sort of just the technical stuff, just sort of what the beauty of filmmaking of that era, which is for me is sort of the golden era. So, so the process was very much finding locations, starts building the universe, looking, you know, figuring out what, uh, what is this small town that's next to the campus? Where is the bar? What does the bar look like? And a lot of the shots in the movie is obviously is, is kind of portraits because it is an ensemble. So it's sort of variations on portraits. Sometimes it's even a group shot with where where we sort of wanted to isolate each because they're not always, you know, they start out as not being sort of quite on friendly terms so uh, so we wanted to sort of the sense of separation and and at other times we wanted to bring them together but uh, first and foremost is sort of the placement of the camera that's number one and we used a very limited sort of uh, set of uh, focal lengths I mean a, a lot of the close-ups are done on a 55 and that sort of became the, the obvious go-to lens so a lot of the process was about sort of making uh, making it simple raising sort of uh, distractions and and uh, and really sort of condensing and almost yeah almost like making a broth we used a lot of cooking sort of references we kept it sort of yeah light and playful mostly and uh which sort of fits the tone of, of the the movie uh, as well for sure it, it's definitely a light and playful movie in moments and it also uh shifts tones quite 
elegantly from scene to scene sometimes. And you definitely talked a bit about you know, production design and how making a movie that feels very much authentic to the 1970s. Go into a little bit more detail about your process for, for what the 1970s looks like, because I remember it, of course, well, as well as anyone my age. And I, I know that my memories are influenced by the movies that I see and influenced by different uh, people's interpretations of what that time was. But I really enjoyed this particular look of the 1970s. I really felt like uh, it captured something authentic to this uh, East Coast sort of world that wasn't just like a nostalgic, grainy movie sort of uh, feel. Talk a little bit about your, you know, the choices that that led you to this point. I think, I mean, first and foremost, because in the beginning I was toying, I, I was just thinking, oh, you know, we'll just do it exactly like, you know, we'll use same lenses, the same cameras. Obviously, you can't quite use the same film, but uh, but then more and more, I sort of I realized that obviously you can't really travel back in time, and it made me realize that it was really more about the spirit of the time. I think what really made that era so so fantastic was the sort of the sense of freedom where people would take go in and shoot a movie in the street handheld they, they would tell stories that hadn't been told before it was uh, the the rules got kicked out of the window so our thinking was that we would be like a mid-budget movie independent movie shot in the early 70s so we really designed it about sort of an, an approach that that uh, seemed like it was basically available light and we shot digital we tested both 35 mil and 16 mil, but even if we, uh, when we shot on on film, we would have to do so many um, digital manipulations down the road to create the, the sort of the, the look of the film stock of of the early 70s. We would have to degrain the, the film and then add grain to it again. Then the, I thought that was a really ironic. So we ended up rather than doing that, I thought, well, I'd rather actually have the lot then and actually create the lot, so so I have a better sense of of what I'm doing. And so, so Joe Gowler, my colorist, has done a lot of uh, criterion restorations. So he knows a lot about what, what happens to the film when it sits around for 50 years. You get these sort of yellow tonality in the highlights. And the, so so we had a lot of that built in from the get-go. But I wasn't also trying, I always operate myself. And this is all one camera. On this one, I tried not to sort of let myself be a slave to the, to the screen. I, I really tried to use my eyes and one of the da the dangers of digital is that uh, that you end up sort of lighting with your eyes as opposed to your brain. So I was really sort of being dogmatic with uh, staying true to the premise and, and our choices as opposed to ironing out every little wrinkle or uh, uh, exerting too much control over sort of tiny details. Yeah, um, I think that really comes through and it feels so authentic. You know, I, I don't, we don't usually dwell too much into cameras and lenses, but it's, it's so authentic to me. And I know some people don't like to give away their secret sauce, but can you mention, you know, I know it's a Panavision or Panavision has their logo at the end of this, but uh, did you choose some older special Dan Sasaki special twist, you know, uh, tweaked lenses, or did you pick something off the shelf and decide to create more of the, the look and post? How did, how did you settle the, the technical aspect of camera choice and lens in, into this look of the show? After we sort of chose to go digital, they, they, uh, it shot on an Airy uh, uh, Alexa Mini, so pretty standard. I mean, I'm I'm sort of used to that camera. And then 
And then we tested sort of a, a period lenses, but we ended up using Panavision H series, but it didn't have too much crazy stuff going on because I didn't really want it to sort of be overly nostalgic or, or sentimental. So, so I didn't want it to feel like we're looking through a frosty pane or, or whatever. Because uh, one of the things we tend to forget with the 70s, because in the 70s, they would do everything to avoid grain. I mean, it's ironic nowadays, everybody's fighting to have grainy images. You know, they, 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 they would fight to have the best possible lenses and now there's this gold rush for for old lenses with with lots of mistakes in and 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 where where half of it is not really in, in focus or whatever so uh, i didn't want the lens to sort of get in the way of uh, with the danger specifically of, of of making it sort of seem sentimental or nostalgic because that that is a danger when you sort of dwell into this territory of period film and 70s and and and, and making it sort of uh, vintage looking yeah, I'm familiar with the H series. They're very lovely lenses. I think the evidence is on the screen. It's a it's a beautiful choice. Many of them are slower lenses, slower as far as primes go, except for that 55, which is ridiculously fast. But I got the feeling that you probably didn't live at the the absolute you know T1 opening of that of of that 55 uh, for most of this movie. It has definitely the, the evoked the feeling, at least to me, of shows that I've seen at that time. Which uh, frankly, they didn't have access to all of those really fast lenses. Not at, at least as many options as we have today, and it's so authentic. It's a it's a w really wonderful feel. Uh, I want to shift gears just just a, a bit here and talk a little bit about you and how you came to choose this career and how you decided that this is something that that really was going to be your work and your passion. I mean, uh, it took me a, a little while. Uh, for a long time, I thought I was going to be a journalist and I wanted to do documentary films. I mean. I think partly because I grew up in a small town in Denmark and I was really eager to get out of this uh, this place. And uh, my brother, who I loved, he moved to Copenhagen. So I felt like Copenhagen, uh, uh, I didn't want you know, I didn't want to follow his, uh, be on his coattails. So uh, by chance, I met this guy who was at a college in Wales at a, uh, at a, actually doing documentary photography. I thought I was going to do documentary films, basically. So I went to college in uh, in Wales, and then there was a really great uh, art house cinema there, Chapter Cinema, that showed all these uh, brilliant uh, movies, and and that that's really sort of became an eye opener to me because I thought, to me, working in the movie business, my parents were academics, so I had no, I didn't even know there was anything called a film school, you know, in like a national film school. So this college experience was, was sort of really an eye opener, and and I just love sort of the the. the to me, in cinematography, there's sort of a it's it's almost like a sort of a performance art in a way because you have to work with all with the elements, you have to work with with all these humans, you have to make every all these different energies and all these characters and and the past and the present and the future all come together at, at one sort of single point in a way and and in a specific time as well and sort of capture it on in your camera and I just have real sort of pleasure when. Uh, when that's working out and and all the the sun and the and the wind and the, or whatever the light and the, when all those elements sort of come together and I think that's just a tremendous pleasure and I also uh, working in films is such a diverse group of people uh, both in terms of people behind the camera and in front of the camera as well I, I just think it's a it's a real treat to have colleagues who are who are so sort of different in, in their skills and personalities and because uh, it is a, a big circus in a way and and you need uh, all these capabilities and talents and uh, yeah I feel very fortunate to have been able to, to yeah to make a living out of that doing uh, what I do. 
when you first read the script, did that sort of tickle uh, an academic funny bone for you? For uh, I mean, the script is, is so funny for this movie. Talk about when you when you first read it and uh, decided that this is something you really wanted to do. I mean, I definitely, uh, most of all, I was laughing a lot when I read it, but I think what the script did, and hopefully the movie as well, it sort of, it takes you to these places. It doesn't drag you down an alley and, and then force feed you. Uh, you. You just sort of, it all, it sort of, sneaks up on you in, in a very sort of elegant way. And and uh, so I was just sort of constantly moved when I read the script and it really sort of stuck with me and it resonated with me. And and and, and I think that the character sort of stayed in me and it was just so obvious that there was so much to work with and lots of uh, avenues uh, within it. I would be terribly bored if I read something and I knew exactly, I just said, oh, I'll just do this and this and this and this and that's how it's going to work that that would totally kill my process because because I, I have to be I have to be a little bit on thin ice and and I have to always sort of be able to push myself and think you know find a sense of uh, connection and, and and sort of building that whole sort of uh, framework and 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 pushing it and uh, and 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 I think a good script has all those sort of uh, it doesn't give you every answer it doesn't it doesn't close every door it's uh, it, it's still sort of vibrates i guess is the one way of putting it uh I, I know a lot of people don't like to uh talk about sort of the competition of movies which is like uh the academy awards but uh every year every year there is a movie that comes out that i see and it's not necessarily uh the biggest buzziest movie that people talk about oscar season but uh this is, you know, when I left the theater, I was like, Academy voters are going to respond well to this. I really think that the uh, the the Oscar race is now on. I feel like there is going to be a lot of discussion about this movie. Uh, I'm curious if you've had a chance to see it uh, with a paying audience yet. I, I'm sure I'm sure you've seen the movie many times, but have you had a chance to see it in a theater with you know with the public? Have you gauged their reaction at all? Do you, do you uh, do you ever do that? I haven't. I mean, I'm in London at, and it was shown for 2,000 people at the London Film Festival. But unfortunately, I was a night shoot, so I was heartbroken. But I met with Alexander the day after, and 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 he was telling me how what a great reception. And the only thing he was upset about was that people were laughing so much that they were missing the line after or whatever. So, uh, so he wasn't. But uh, but no, I haven't myself seen it with, with a huge audience, which I really want to. Uh, but it hasn't come out in England yet, so I haven't had the opportunity. But that's what I want to, because I want to, uh, more than I want to see the movie, I want to see the audience seeing the movie. Yeah, it's really wonderful work. And the Oscar race is on now. I feel like that, uh, you know, really that this is going to be the movie that uh, attracts. I, I could be wrong, but as people start to get out to the movie theaters, I think it's a uh, wonderful uh, length of time. Some movies are very, very long, which can sometimes be taxing, even if they're good. This movie uh, never felt long to me. It's put together so uh, fantastically. Your work in it is impeccable. And Paul Giamatti and the entire cast is just so fantastic. I expect that there's going to be a lot of conversation coming up in the, the next few months about the holdovers. Eigel Brilled, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a wonderful achievement. And uh, I, I really can't wait to, to see how, how things shake out. I'm so I'm so glad you, uh, you enjoyed it so much. And I enjoyed talking to you. Um, it's an honor to be on your show. All right, so that was Eigel Brill. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And everyone go go see The Holdovers. And everyone go see In Bruges. Holy crap. I love that movie. I mean, like, I lit up when you said that he shot In Bruges. I think that that movie is a freaking masterpiece. Yeah, I saw it in the theater. So, yeah, it was... Yeah, uh, I saw it in the theater, yeah. too. Pretty, pretty amazing stuff. Uh, 
And now, short ends. All right, so Ben, it is our close focus time of the show. What's uh, going on in Ben Rockworld? What what is your obsession this week? What what do you got going well, on? Well, I want to put a plug in for a good friend of mine, Joe Lynch. And uh, maybe this extends the Halloween season by a week or so for some people. Joe Lynch, Halloween is over. Uh, and not in my heart. <laughs> yeah, so, I was going to say ha- ha- Halloween. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who are big Halloweeners. I yeah. think that's the right term, right? Halloweener. Oh, no. And, we, we, and, yeah, we prefer that. Yeah. Uh, or, or is it Halloweeny? I don't remember what it is. But uh, it, either, I, either does. It's like Trekker or Trekkie. We're okay with either one. You can tell the hardcore people, the Halloweeners, because uh, October 1... Houses decorated, yards yeah. decorated. They're maximizing, full maximizing the amount of time they have available for Halloween. And then let me tell you, Dia de los Muertos, November 1st. And then pretty much it has to come down because now it's Thanksgiving. There's can, the, can I, but I, have, I still have my Halloween decorations up. I've got a neighbor who keeps a guillotine in their front yard up all the way through Christmas, which I think is awesome because my kids go and make a snowman and put the snowman in the guillotine, which That's is That's amazing. Yeah, we have yeah. a neighbor who has a uh, skeleton playing a piano in their yard year round. Oh, fantastic. And then they're in our neighborhood they, and we have a neighborhood that there are a few houses that go pretty all out for Halloween. Theirs is like a Halloween attraction. Like it's, Ooh, there's right. a line to get into it. It's, it's pretty amazing. All right. I didn't mean to derail your short end here. Uh, what, what is your short end? So my short end is a movie that came out right before Halloween called Suitable Flesh. And it's awesome. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's a, uh, I, I love this movie. As opposed to unsuitable flesh. Well, so. <laughs> it is, uh, when you see the movie, it's, it's a very clever play on words because it's sort of about, it's based on an H.P. Lovecraft story called The Thing at the Doorstep. And mm-hmm. it's about basically a entity who basically body hops and can take over one body and another body and another body. And so your flesh is its suit. Get it? That's the joke. Oh, I got it. Uh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So my friend uh, Joe Lynch, who hosts his own podcast, by the way, he's the co-host of The Movie Crypt along with Adam Green. He made this movie. Now, this was originally a movie that was going to be made by uh, one of my favorite people I ever got to work with, Stuart Gordon, who unfortunately passed away about three years ago. Uh, it was written by Dennis Paoli, who wrote many of... Stewart's biggest movies, including Reanimator, From Beyond, and Dagon, and I believe Castle Freak. And uh, Dennis Paoli is freaking amazing. The movie stars Heather Graham, and it is such a brilliant melding. It's a mind meld of what makes Joe Lynch's movies awesome and fun. Like he's made movies like Mayhem and Everly and then merged with sort of the Stuart Gordon aesthetic. And in fact, a lot of people from Stuart's uh, repertory company of actors, including the, the amazing Barbara Crampton, who's, who goes all the way back to Reanimator and From Beyond, and she's in a bunch of them, and Chris McKenna and Graham Skipper, who are people who've, who've worked with Stuart a bunch. And uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. It also has Bruce Davidson, and like I said, it stars Heather Graham. And, oh, wow. And it's... Uh, it's bonkers if you like that kind of movie, which is to say a horror movie that's got a good sense of humor and also is kind of sexy. Mm. Oh, and one more shout out. Uh, it's uh, sexy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Suitable flesh is sexy. It I just want to make sure I heard is. you correctly. Oh, okay. And I should mention also, it was shot by somebody named David Matthews, who I, I was a big fan of his band in the 90s. So I'm glad that he's uh, he's keeping it going. No, no laugh. No Dave Matthews. 
Nothing. I, 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 it, it zoomed right <laughs> past me. Yeah. I, 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 I have to admit, I was not a big, I, I didn't listen to Dave Matthews. I don't, I, I've never owned a Dave Matthews ever. I, I, I am also not a, a fan of the musician Dave Matthews, but. Uh, <laughs> but I, your friend Dave Matthews, yeah. But well, he's not my friend. Uh, I've never no. met him. We could have him on no. the show maybe someday. Uh, I think his shooting of it, like it's beautiful. It's sexy. It's dark and it goes uh, nice and surreal in many places. I, I, I just, uh, I adore this movie. It's definitely in my top, basically this and Talk to Me are probably my two favorite horror movies I've seen this year. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I can't say enough good things about it. And so uh, I'm just encouraging people, if you are so inclined as I am to seek this kind of thing out, definitely check out Suitable Flesh. Wow. Okay. Suitable Flesh. Where, where would someone find that? It's going to be on Shutter, I think, in a in a month or so. Like right now, you would need to rent it on um, VOD, Amazon, or yeah, wherever you wherever you get that kind of stuff. Nothing wrong with waiting for it to be on Shutter if you're if you're a Shutter subscriber. Uh, it was released by Shutter, and I don't know if it's still playing in theaters. It was in theaters last week, and I did see this on the big screen. I saw it in a, in a theater, and it was worth it. But check your local listing, see if it's playing in theaters. If it is. Please go see it. So, Ilya, what is your short end this week? My short end this week is a movie called Quiz Lady. I just mm. saw Quiz Lady on Hulu, and it's got kind of an interesting you know, story about how it came to be. It's directed by Jessica Yu, who's been a primarily a television director for, for many years. But this uh, feature film stars Aquafina and Sandra Oh. Both playing against type, where Sandra O, oh, who's usually kind of the straight person, plays the zany sort of crazy sidekick, mm. and Aquafina, who usually plays that sort of you know a little bit maybe more over the top. Now she's playing it straight, very very toned down, and they they play sisters, and it's sort of a uh, you know a, a farcical zany lighthearted, you know, low stakes movie. I mean, you, you, you watch this movie and you're not, you know, uh, you're not biting your nails at edge of your seat, you know, wondering what's going to happen. It's a comedy. It's a very broad, light comedy, but uh, it's got a certain charm to it. And if you're into that sort of like light, broad humor, I mean, I'd definitely say it kind of falls into the same sort of realm as something like maybe like, a, you know, like a Bridesmaids or many Will Ferrell movies. And Will Ferrell's in this and he gets to, oh, cool. you know, play sort of like a Alex Trebek style quiz show host sort of character, which he has a ton of experience doing sort of like an Alex Trebek impersonation on SNL. This is not that it's his own character, but he gets, he does play the, the quiz master. And if you're looking for turn off your brain, have a few laughs, high key lighting, broad humor, uh, quiz lady, you could do a lot. You could do a lot worse. It it's came. It got the green light in 2020, back when 20th Century Fox was a studio. It was also for a little while. It seemed like it was going to be a Netflix production, and uh, ends up on Hulu. So anyway, it's uh, it it premiered at Toronto. It was did the uh, little festival run, and now anyone could watch it. It definitely feels like something maybe you would have seen in a theater years ago. It had like a 24 million dollar budget, but now it is uh, you know direct to Hulu, which, you know, for a lot of people, they, they already have Hulu, either ad or unad supported. It's an inexpensive uh, streaming service. And and Quiz Lady, it's got, oh, it's got a really great cameo by Tony Hale. And hmm. uh, I won't say anything about it. Tony Hale just is this uh, fantastic, you know, uh, comedic force in the movie. And actually, uh, posthumously, I think this is the last movie of uh, Paul Rubens. Paul Rubens oh, has wow. got a little cameo in it, too. And, you know. Way to bum me out. 
sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I didn't mean to bump it. But you know, Paul Rubens play, uh, has just like this this little tiny moment in the movie, and it's a nice sort of like capper on on the whole thing. So uh, anyway, it's uh, it it is my short end this week. Quiz lady, if you're looking for something that is zany, a little bit farcical, not edge of your seat riveting, it's like you know you had a long day at work, you just want to sit down and laugh. You could do a lot worse. Quiz lady, there awesome. Make it a double right, feature so, with suitable flesh. You know, uh, I think that might be a little bit uh, whiplash for some of our audience <laughs> members, but uh, but sure, Look, yeah. You're you know, talking about a, a world that went for Barbenheimer. I think that I think that the <laughs> quiz lady flesh. Uh, that that quiz lady will flesh that can catch on, right? That's a thing, right? Yeah, that's that's a thing. It'll yeah, totally catch so. on. All right, so so Ben, uh, where can people find you if they want to track you down? Uh, go to benrock.com. All my stuff is at benrock.com, and if you want to find me on social media, I'm usually at Neptune Salad, except on Threads, where it's following my Benjamin underscore Rock because I never really thought Instagram was going to catch on. <laughs> Anyway, Ilya, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, sponsor of this fine show, mm-hmm. uh, hotrodcameras.com, where you can get all kinds of uh, camera equipment, lighting equipment, sound equipment, you name it. Or if you just need some advice, you know, people call so- just for advice sometimes. You mean like, and, like uh, personal advice? Like uh, you're trying to make it's a... Not a- it's not exactly Miss Manners or Dear Abby, but you know it is. Uh, it we, is we, we could start filmmaking that. advice. Yeah, we, yeah. Could, we could have like a Dear Abby segment. Uh, you know, Dear Ilya, and and people could uh, could write in and and give their technical questions, and then you could give them thoughtful answers. That could be like a whole new segment that we start doing. You know, uh, we haven't done uh, viewer mail in a while. I'll have to get on get on that with Alana. See if there's some some stuff that maybe maybe there's some stuff out there. Some burning questions that, that I don't even don't even know about. So, uh, anyway, so Ben, who do we have to thank? Who made uh, this show possible? Uh, well, the same person who makes it possible every week, who is Alana Cody. She's kicking all the ass, getting us all these interviews. We have some pretty amazing big ones coming up, as well as this one. Not to not to not that this one wasn't huge. And we should also thank Ben Katz our editor who kicks all the ass as well and makes us not sound and apparently look like idiots now that we're, uh, you know, doing the YouTube thing. I, there's, there's only so much he can do. Please. Yeah, I mean, somebody, yeah, somebody, he's going to get some AI going here over all this. I know. It's going to be like, <laughs> seriously, help me mid journey. You're my only hope. And uh, lastly, but never leastly, we should thank Kay's Alatraxi. Uh, go to musicbykays.com, Hire him to score your next project or, do your color correction or do visual effects. Or if you, if you really want, have him make the whole thing. He can direct it. He could even, he doesn't like me talking about this, but he's an excellent sound designer. He's sound designed a couple of projects that I've worked on. He doesn't really like talking about the sound design thing, but he's actually pretty good at it. So uh, you, he, he could direct it for you. He could record the sound. He could probably shoot it for you. I know that he usually works with a DP though. So it, it's so crazy how there's some people out there who can do all those jobs, like all of them who do yeah. all the jobs. I, I don't, I don't get it. Well, it's like it's when like, Russell Carpenter was on and he confirmed our, uh, our suspicion about James Cameron, that James yeah. Cameron could literally fire anyone on the crew and take over their job. Case is kind of like our own personal James Cameron. I, th- I think that's fair to say. I think that's, I think that's actually super accurate. And I'm pretty sure that, uh, you know, Case Alatrachi could probably if he had to like fire craft service and become craft service, his craft service would be, would be like magnificent. Oh, he'd be making like he's, wood fired pizzas. Uh, uh, my God, yeah, his yeah, yeah. P- the yeah. pizza that he makes is, is just to die for. It's amazing. So anyway, Elliot, that's about enough of that. Uh, could you take us out? Thanks for watching. Whoa. Whoa. I know. Crazy. Uh. <laughs>
<laughs> I, I think we need a new tagline. Maybe thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. It's just thanks for consuming our content. Thanks Ugh. for coming out and smash doing that your, like. Ooh, yeah. There's, Don't there's smash little, anything. There, there, there's some cringe there. I, it's, I, can't, I, right. I can't with the smash the like. <laughs> Bye. See ya. <laughs> This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.